0: experience did change me in ways that uh, were perhaps not not all good, you know? I went there for an experience that was always going to be positive, positive, but uh, and I did hear about this. I was warned about it, but at no point had I ever recognised that that was what was going on. So, yeah, certainly that's one element to working in horrific trauma centres. I mean, this trauma centre has the same volume of patients that civil wars see. It's just never been called a civil war.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I am speaking to Dr. Andrew Haddam. Andrew is an advanced trainee in vascular surgery with interests in trauma and transplant surgery. He holds a Bachelor of Biomedical Science in which he trained in lab-based research and obtained his honours in epidemiology from the University of Melbourne. He studied medicine in Cairns, Queensland and holds a graduate diploma in applied anatomy by dissection. He also holds a PhD in cardiovascular physiology from the University of Melbourne. Andrew is passionate about medical and surgical education and sits on the Australian and New Zealand Association for the Surgery of Trauma Education Committee. He is also a founding member of the Faculty of the Anatomy of Surgical Exposure course in Cairns, helping to develop the curriculum and textbook. If you would like to follow some of Andrew's work, he is on Twitter, at Andrew Haddam. In part one of today's podcast, we discuss Andrew's unique position working as a surgeon in major hospitals in both Melbourne and Sydney at the height of each city's COVID-19 outbreak. This first-hand perspective is a real eye-opener and well worth the listen. I'm in awe of our healthcare workers and am proud of all Australians who have done the right thing through this pandemic to ensure they feel supported and valued at this difficult time. My discussion with Andrew was recorded in late November 2021, so a lot of the COVID talk is pre-Omicron. On that note, I hope everyone is feeling safe and healthy. Book in your booster if you haven't already and let's get on top of this thing. In part two of the podcast, Andrew explains vascular surgery, the daily life of a surgeon and how he got into the profession. Andrew's alternative pathway into the medical field is an inspiring one and illustrates that not everyone has to take the same road and sometimes all we need is someone to believe in us. Part three of the podcast delves into some of the experience that make Andrew the surgeon he is today including some incredible stories from his time in a trauma hospital in South Africa. I am so glad we have people like Andrew in our corner, ready at any time of the day or night to provide life-saving treatment to those that need it. I learned a lot during our conversation and think you will too. So without further delay, I bring you Andrew Haddam. Andrew, welcome to Moments of Clarity.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: It's my pleasure. We've been talking for a while now about you you jumping on and... Uh, you know, we finally got around to it, which I'm, I'm really, really appreciating, um, especially with your busy life. So, Andrew, um, why are you so busy? What is it that you're currently doing?
0: Well, I'm currently, I'd say, midway through my surgical training. But uh, I think, as some people may know, there's been a global pandemic of COVID, <laughs> which has made pretty much every doctor extremely busy. During my, with my vascular surgery training, we have to rotate through hospitals every year. Um, Last year, I was at a extremely busy Melbourne metropolitan hospital, which probably took most of the brunt of the COVID, the COVID hit in 2020. So that um, made me uh, work pretty hard uh, trying to sustain a vascular service, vascular surgery service, which is historically extremely busy through the night, through the day. It's a service-oriented profession where you do your own work but you also tend to spend a lot of time bailing out other colleagues or helping other colleagues. So so it's, it's busy. So spending that time doing it in an um, understaffed unit in the middle of Melbourne uh, was tough but I enjoyed it thoroughly. 2021 brought me to New South Wales where I was then by pure bad luck also rotating through uh, another metropolitan hospital in Sydney that uh, was in the middle of their huge outbreak in 2021 so that kept me busy as well doing the same service provision that I that I did uh, the year prior so trying to train as a as a surgeon and trying to wade the madness of covid and now it's all just slowing down a little bit. And I'll be moving to South Australia next year. And if I if I bring COVID there or if I experience COVID there, I think that's when I'm going to start taking it personally. I think <laughs> South Australia have done it pretty well. Uh, and I'm hoping my time at uh, one of their two very busy uh, hospitals will um, be a, a lot more COVID free than my last two years.
1: I don't want to go too in depth in COVID, but I will to start with, just to yeah. to get it get it out of the way, because uh, then yeah. we can move on. So, what have you learned during this pandemic? What what have you found out about yourself, about the the health system in general, about behaviours of people? Were we prepared? What what sort of lessons and I guess thoughts have you got around this um, pandemic in an Australian context? Yeah, it's interesting. I think when I
0: first heard about it. I just, in my mind, and I didn't really do much research, much the same in, you know, there was swine flu, there was all these bird flu or whatever came out, and they didn't really cause much grief here. And perhaps in my mind, I initially thought that this was just going to be one of those outbreaks. So I sort of didn't give it much thought. Uh, and then obviously during the time in Melbourne, when it hit hard, we experienced it uh, significantly. But I, uh, I'm not sure we all really knew. And and I and I think that's where where there's a lot of criticism from medical and non medical people to doctors, um, other healthcare providers, the government, is that like there is I don't think there's a rule book for this. Like we don't really know what we're how we to get into it. But I, I would say that during the non vaccinated period in two thousand and twenty, especially in the institution that I worked in. There was a lot of camaraderie in that, in the in the in the healthcare sector, that we really did all look after each other. I had friends that caught COVID on the on the ward, trying their best within the limits of the PPE and the limits of the what we what we do, were doing our best to do. Strangely enough, my ward, um, the vascular surgery ward in my hospital, became the COVID ward. So all our nurses. Uh, ended up becoming COVID nurses. I carried on doing vascular surgery through that pandemic time, uh, oral unvaccinated, I guess, then. And what happened in that institution, I think in every institution, was obviously not as much and not as significant as it happened in, say, Italy and the UK, et cetera. But there was a lot of death and I, I didn't even see it working in the walls of that hospital at minimum 12 hours a day. So the the community was never going to see it. They just saw it on the news. I heard more of it because our our nurses, the vascular nurses, were looking after the patients and I only learned it after the fact. Um, My junior doctors that were working with me early in the year that ended up being rotated to the COVID wards and hospitals, the stories they tell are are just extremely confronting things that junior doctors or any doctor has never been prepared for. There's no way, you know, they they would have graduated two or three years prior. There's no way they would have thought, well, I'm going to be holding an iPad to someone's face and letting them say goodbye to their family as I palliate them. So I think from, from my perspective, there's no... I don't think that we as a society fully appreciate how significant it was or it is in the hospitals. The hospitals obviously don't want to advertise it. It's not not their job. Their job is to look after people. The media and the government probably, well, the media may want to, but the government definitely don't want to tell people how bad it is. There's an element of transparency, but I think if there was a true appreciation for how significant that was in Victoria, Uh, during that that those those initial waves um, we may reflect upon it differently or perhaps society will um, in considering how significant this virus is stark contrasts of my new south wales experience so i think victoria to sort of try and answer the question from a interpersonal perspective perhaps in my hospital i can only give my hospital i don't know what other hospitals were like but there was a strong camaraderie i think people just did really, really well, and it was tough for everyone, but but they got through it um, as best they could. New South Wales was a bit different. I was quite um, taken aback by their health system, which is different to the Victorian health system. On a personal note, I would say it's not as good. They will tell you differently, um, and their Premier did. On many occasions, when you would go to work in a hospital and you would hear media reports about that hospital and you'd hear you know, the, the, the daily press conferences talk about the outbreaks and there was just such significant disconnect between the government and the people in the front line. I don't think it was truly reflected, you know, to the to the, to the society and I think that's maybe Victoria did the same thing. You know, we definitely didn't communicate it but, and they may not have wanted to but maybe the same thing was happening... Um, in New South Wales, but I thought New South Wales probably had an opportunity to learn from from other experiences, not necessarily just the Victorian experience. But just being in there, I felt that I felt that they were in the same position Victoria was the year prior, but they had all the they had the past experiences, and uh, you could see this this headbutting between the the on, the, on a government level about uh, you know victoria did this on you know new south wales did this and that made it tough uh, and i think tough maybe for me just to to try and experience because i sort of felt like it wasn't going as well as it could have in the current system but i also think that the new south wales system is is, is there's not much slack in their system they're a pretty overrun overburdened system to start with the culture is quite significant significantly different and uh, most recent AMA New South Wales AMA documents just come out to talk about culture and experiences of junior doctors through New South Wales health and it's quite damning. Um, and strangely enough it's a, the hospital that I worked at was ranked sort of block towards the top sort of middle middle to higher than other hospitals and I thought it was uh, overranked from my perspective. So I think from a that there are many elements in terms of culture and how the doctors and nurses and other health providers interact in the New South Wales system, and I think that it was tough to start with. I think you had a, you had a pandemic into it, and I think it just didn't cope as well as the Victorian system. But again, that's my opinion and that's my experiences. But there's not many that have worked between the two. I'd like to think that I'm not biased towards Victoria. I didn't I didn't train. I didn't do my medical school training in Victoria at all, um, just from, from Victoria. Did some of my training there, trained overseas as well, but it, very different experiences between the two states. I think I look back at it with uh, with fondness regardless of uh, where I was because I think it it's, say, an interesting and um, career-changing experience regardless of where I was and how it was dealt with above my
1: pay grade. So as a a vascular surgeon you remained in that role but everything around you changed. What did you notice? You said that there was a lot of death. I mean, you deal with death as well. Hopefully, you know, not too often, but um the job ensures that. And and often we talk about Australia being protected from the realities of the pandemic compared to the US or Italy or you know, Europe or wherever or India or Brazil. But it's still significant and significantly higher. What what impact you said it was there was camaraderie, but what impact did that have on the running of, I guess, the staff? What what impact did that have on the mental health of those staff and also on patients that were in there for other reasons? Like this impact is it's a cascading effect that goes pretty much to every level of society. It's not just those 1,900 and something that have died or those families that are associated with those people or even those that are sick. There's a an extremely high level of i guess negativity associated with a pandemic that was managed so well as it has been in australia so yeah so so what what did you notice you know with those colleagues but also with the the people coming in for um routine care or emergency care rather than covid care
0: so i think how it, how it affected the staff was by pure fatigue so <laughs> doctors and nurses are and other providers, I shouldn't, I mean, there's, there's everyone, there's a lot more others, um, professionals providing care, but healthcare providers, uh, it's it's hard at the best of times to get in there and and do your job. Adding PPE and COVID into the mix uh, becomes even more exhausting. And I think that the studies have probably already say to come out that people will be quantifying it and describing it better than I think I will. But there will be, and I'm sure there is, especially from the Victorians, mostly because I'm probably a bit closer to some of them there, is that there is uh, fatigue, burnout, probably PTSD from having to deal with this just in, in our country. I'm sure that the UK and everywhere is far worse as well, but just to talk about what we did. But there is this element that we're all in it together, so we're going to get through it. From a patient perspective, it must have been terrifying. So last year, not only did we stop patients coming into the hospital, they just needed to get their Category 1, their urgent or semi-urgent operations done. So for me, aneurysms, um, dying limbs, things like that, they they all needed to be done. Cancers, et cetera, for other professionals. But there there was fear for people to come into hospital. So when people start having alarming signs and symptoms of, of diseases or symptoms of diseases, they, from my anecdotal experience, I guess, people held off and didn't want to come into hospital because that's where COVID was. And I'm sure that their pathologies were far worse, you know, at the time they presented. I'm not sure that we're ever going to capture the data of people that died with fear of coming and seeking healthcare certainly i had one patient last year come to the hospital and get covid from another patient on the ward that happened one for one vascular patient in my institution and that was pre-vaccine this year heaps got covid from healthcare providers from uh, from other patients so even the patients you know trying to recover or travel the journey through their through their disease it's hard enough that you had having to wear a mask being fearful that you're going to get this horrible disease in hospital is unpleasant and then when they do get it having to ring family members of your patients to explain to them that they got COVID under your care is uh is an extremely um, unpleasant experience to go through I think only one of them, one of mine, or two, two died from getting COVID. Uh, yeah, I looked after a pretty fragile cohort of patients, but not many, not many of them were vaccinated. I don't even, I'm not sure if any of them that actually got it were vaccinated. Some one or two of them might have had one dose, but the vast majority were unvaccinated. And, that, and then thereafter became the big push for vaccination. So I think from a patient perspective, it definitely changed how their experience was. But even just not being able to see the face of your healthcare provider, um, not being able to hear if you're older or English is not your first language and you've got all these people standing around you with goggles, hats, masks, you can't barely hear what they say. You're trying to use more common languages to explain significant pathology. You're trying to get a consent form for a high-risk operation. You're trying to establish the limitations of a patient's wants, from the medical fraternity, you know, a do not resuscitate kind of conversation. People that start to die and you can't get their family members to come in. You want to palliate someone because you know they're at the end of their journey and you can't get their family to come in. Is uh, unpleasant for everyone, including the patients that are surrounded by that. You know, it's a four bedroom, or you know, there are you know, it's human nature. You can't just switch that off and not listen patients, providers, families, um, super confronting. So I guess in terms of how that went from healthcare workers and for patients, yeah, pretty significant, but in terms of what you were talking about and the amount of death, I saw uh, probably seeing more death in my probably comparatively short career compared to others in my stage, but that probably comes from a lot of time in uh, overseas. Um, in, in areas that I've spent time in, but things like, say, for example, the vascular ward where I worked last year, surgical nurses aren't used to patients dying on their ward. It's just not a thing. Like, it happens, but it's, it's, you know, maybe one, one every six months, maybe, just as a random guess, but this was daily, daily appearance. People are dying. Junior doctors aren't used to people dying. You develop this experience and how you cope with death through your career as a junior doctor in the medical wards. I'm sure you're certifying deaths of very old and, you know, frail patients, and that happens. But having to be in charge of palliating someone, providing them the comfort care and the medications that they require, often on your own, in all those PPE and via via FaceTime, is not a... um, not an experience that uh, I'm sure people will have um, gone through with these. For everyone, not just healthcare workers, but the entire society has been tough in the last couple of years, but um, the healthcare workers, and I think especially the nursing staff and the intensive care and respiratory ward staff have been phenomenal. Um, and I, I don't think that um, we as a society appreciate what they've gone through And
1: how well they've done it. So how do you feel when you you, um, hear about places like Florida where masks are banned or places with, you know, 50% or less vaccine rates in places where there are available vaccines or all this discussion about, you know, almost that individual, me, 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 I don't care, I don't want a vaccine, I don't want to wear a mask, I don't want to distance, I don't want to follow rules. And then you can imagine and picture what those people in hospitals that probably aren't as good as ours here in Australia either. How they might feel does that does that just blow you away, annoy you, or have you sort of come to come to some sort of peace with that?
0: Yeah, I think that. Trying to decide if that puts me in a in a legal uh, conundrum because uh, there's been the um, the issues and uh, surrounding uh, misinformation and telling people you know what what healthcare providers can and can't say and how they advocate for, for patients and for the vaccine, it's tough. I think, you know, as a healthcare provider, I have to say you need to get vaccinated. In my experience, especially this year, after the after the, the vaccines uh, came out, it was so unusual to see someone in hospital who'd been vaccinated. Like, I don't think I ever even saw one or even heard, heard of one in hospital. So I think there were vaccinated healthcare workers who had it were asymptomatic that just, you know, coming come into the hospital. But so that's, you know, my, my from my perspective. But then then there's the, the people who say, well, I'm young, I'm fit. You know, the people I've seen that get COVID, you know, just a runny nose and a sniffle and they've, they've cracked on, they've still run their 10Ks during the day. Why should I subject myself to this uh, rushed vaccination? That I don't know what's in it. We don't know what the long-term side effects are. And it's still pretty risky for me, um, considering I don't think that I'm going to get that sick if I get COVID. But I think as I said earlier, society aren't aware of, of um, how sick these people get. And the people that are sick and dying in hospital aren't, they're not, they're not posting on Instagram. It's the ones that did pretty well with COVID that are posting on Instagram. And if that's all you see, then you see the fit young people doing well with COVID, but you're not seeing the fit young people, athletes that are in ICU lying on their stomach to try and improve their breathing uh, and getting sick and then really struggling with this long COVID. I think there's an element of exposure and understanding, but in the, you know, for example, you're giving a good set sort of American stand on it, where people, your masks are banned and, um, you know, people have the right and not the right, you know, there's no mandated vaccinations. I mean, you know, I can't get, I couldn't get a job as a doctor five years ago without showing my vaccination status, you know, for for all types of things. I can't get into Kenya without a yellow fever vaccination, <laughs> but yet all of a sudden the COVID things become, become an issue. I think that comes from a different, a different culture, and I think the Americans have that, they have a different uh, a different culture uh, and a different or well, many of them have a different thought process um, which stems from from their history uh, about no i'll do what i want you know the government stays away from me and, and and that's and there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that in many different realms of life and a lot of it i would probably agree with uh, in terms of mandating and not mandating things um, but uh, i think the biggest issue in all of this, is misinformation and education. I just think that we are really struggling to educate our society and people who are perhaps not experts making expert opinions on things. And I think that that underpins a lot of the issues we have in regards to vaccine fear and COVID misinformation.
1: Mm. And the fact is it's become politicised and really the the lines you look at in in... Germany and Austria and around the world, you know that that suffering again is almost a direct link between certain political views and being unvaccinated or or not wanting to follow certain rules and and it's moved away from a scientific debate because it's almost not settled. it's very new and there's papers coming out at a faster rate than anything in history, um, you know, looking at this and changing minds but but the science is sort of settled that, that this is a genuine horrible disease and vaccines work and all the nuances around that we can look at but but this completely alternative view yeah has moved away from science or reality into a political divide of of opinion and and almost ideology rather than yeah what the benefit the net benefit would be to people but um we might move away from covid now um we dive into it but <laughs> um but yeah I, I didn't plan to talk about it, but it's always interesting, especially from your experiences. So, thanks for sharing um, what you went through. As um, much as I
0: can. I think, before I finish talking about uh, just a doctor, I am like I would just be a doctor in a COVID hospital. I think when we talk about you know, people ask me all the time about I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an infectious disease doctor, I'm not a respiratory physician, and there's no one person probably outside of. Fauci in the US who could really just comment on every single aspect of this problem. Like I, I understand a little bit of virology, you know, what I learned in medical school and what I need to know. I understand a bit of, you know infectious disease, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because I need to for what I need to do. But to try and understand all this and try and figure it all out, it's not just one element of specialty, man, one specialty. It's, it's many specialties, um, not just medical, and. I think that's where we've found it to be so difficult in trying to communicate all of the information to people, because there is people want all the answers and they want it straight away and they want it there and then, but it's just not able to be done that way. And I think in our here in our society, you can pick up your iPad and get what you need within seconds. Um, we, we never had that with COVID, and I think we really struggled from that perspective. So. Um, My opinion is purely based on someone who's just worked in hospitals as a surgeon, the last person that you want to help you with a
1: uh, horrible virus. What is the vascular system? What is vascular surgery and what is it that you're trained and specialised to do?
0: Uh, Vascular surgery?
1: Oh, ah, good
0: question. So people always think that it's it's to do with um, the heart, and it kind of is. So it used to be almost a combination of um, heart and blood vessels. So it depends on where you're trained and where you were in, in, in the world. Vascular surgery, so surgery on the arteries and on the veins, the pipes that take blood away from the heart, which are the pulsatile ones that when you cut them, they pulse and they spurt everywhere or the veins that are the blue ones under your skin that bring the blood back to your heart to be oxygenated that just sort of leak and ooze because they're a bit lower pressure. They used to be combined with, say, for example, in Houston, in Texas, you'd have a cardiovascular surgeon, you have a heart surgeon who also operated on blood vessels outside of the heart. Historically in, in Australia and other countries, vascular surgery was part of general surgery. So surgeons that operated on the neck and the the abdominal organs and everywhere like that, that they would also have skills to manage blood vessels. But probably in the last 30, 40 years, it's developed as its own specialty where you predominantly just look after arteries and veins and blood supply to all the organs in the body, probably excluding the heart because the heart surgeons tend to do that because they need cardiopulmonary bypass. So it's it's a pretty exciting specialty because with technology we evolve and we now do angiograms and stents and balloons, just like people understand we do for the heart and people having heart attacks. And we have adopted those uh, techniques for blood vessels everywhere else, including veins, pretty much everywhere from even now into the brain but from the the, the base of the skull, the top of your neck, to the tips of your toes, everywhere. We can get to with a wire pretty much and uh, and an X-ray machine. But we also use the more traditional surgical techniques, open surgery techniques with a knife and a retractor and and sponges and and all the other things um, and sutures, um, grafts and things like that to repair the blood vessels with the more, more traditional surgical techniques. And then a combination of the two would be considered what we call hybrid surgeries, and that's another element to what what we do now as well. With the evolution of medical management, diabetes management with insulin and uh, tablets and things like that, uh, medications like aspirin, cholesterol medications for heart disease, uh, dialysis for renal failure patients. Our patients are now older and they've got a significant burden of disease and they develop problems with their arteries as a result of that. So we have quite complicated patients with multiple organ systems that are dysfunctional that we need to consider uh, when we offer uh, a potential surgical intervention for their problem. So we're pretty busy. We manage lots of emergency cases as well. Um, Obviously, to do with blood supply, that's a big big element too what we do so there's a lot of work in the middle of the night in high stress environments but there's also nice relaxing stuff you can do a nice angiogram you can make a create a fistula in a patient's arm so they can have dialysis and and you can just manage varicose veins if you're one of your rooms just to have a chilled out right afternoon so there's a lot of uh, variety and a lot of um, exciting new technologies that we're applying uh,
1: to complicated problems Seems like a fair bit would have changed even recently. So, what what uh, has been the biggest change since you began this journey in in the field to to today?
0: I think there's a lot more. It's it's to do with the angiogram based interventions. Every year and every nearly every month, every conference you go to, there's something new. So, it's really difficult for us to actually study things long term. Because by the time you start doing a long-term study, there's there's a new one out. It's better than the last one. So, say, for for example, stents or balloons. But even just since I've started, the use of what we call hybrid theatres, which is a new operating theatre style where you combine an angiogram suite with x-rays and... That formal open operating experience because some hospitals would use an angiogram suite or an angiography suite from a radiology department, which is not within the operating suite. But you're limited down there um, uh, in those departments because you're away from what you're used to. You're away from an operating theatre, and in case you you know you get into trouble and you need to actually open somebody. Um, you know, with a knife, or you know, with a formal, with a formal, um, uh, open surgical technique, or if the operation is quite complex and you need them to go to sleep, putting a general anaesthetic machine can be difficult in some some institutions. So, I think the larger use of hybrid theatres is something that's probably come about in you know, in my brief time. They're not cheap, so the healthcare system struggled to fund them and vascular surgery units are historically very small units a bunch of sort of three four five surgeons sitting in um you know in, in offices that um have a couple of lists a week we do some operating and but we're you know we're pretty important to other services because if other services are pushing the boundary and trying to do major operations they get in trouble a lot of the time they need us to come and help because there's bleeding or there's uh, damage to a blood vessel, for example. So, we don't have the political power, for lack of a better term, uh, in hospitals that other units, you know, big big units, um, that have um, more funding or more staff, uh, to be trying to then justify the existence of a, of a hybrid lab and a theatre uh, theatre suite. So, when you're looking at two million dollars, for example, for a hybrid theatre most hospitals are doing pretty well there's quite a few through Victoria now but there's still major centres that don't have them which will slow providing a, a high class vascular service to that population
1: and and what would your week look like what 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 does a, a well a busy week or a or a normal week they're all busy what does a normal working week yeah. look like
0: yeah so there's obviously operating so but before we start our day we tend to do a ward round every day which would be to see the inpatients at the hospital so usually starting about uh, very rarely when i start at six six maybe six thirty seven o'clock however i think it's important to know start at six thirty you don't get paid from six thirty you get paid from seven and in some institutions you might get paid from eight so you've done an hour and a half's work or an hour's work before your day starts
1: on a on the clock why? Why would you go?
0: Why do you bother turning up? You, can't, you won't be able to achieve the work. You, you can't do the work in the time that's given to you. So, because for example, if you needed to start, if you're you started getting paid at eight o'clock in the morning, theater starts at eight o'clock in the morning, but you've got 30 patients that need to be seen before the before the start of your day. So you'd start your day with your junior staff that tend to manage the patients on the ward when you're away, and you do a ward round. So you go and see all the patients. All the vascular patients in the hospital. And that includes on your ward, any other wards, and usually the intensive care unit or perhaps anyone in the emergency department that's coming overnight. And your junior staff will then have to be part of that team and they understand, right, this is, the, this is the progress of the patient, this is the plan for the day, this is what we need to achieve. And usually the junior staff then crack on and, and um, do all those uh, junior, junior doctor jobs. We try and get a coffee with the team before we start theatre. Not always the case, but it's. I think it's an important element to the the teamwork and also just to to, to caffeinate up before you crack on. And then theatre starts, and you may have uh, a morning list which will go from eight o'clock in the morning to twelve or twelve thirty. Uh, you may have a, just an afternoon list which would start at say one, and then you go to six o'clock in the after, in, in the evening. Or you'd have an all-day list, which is where you just have the AM and the PM list joined together. And then you would just operate through those days. You may not have operating every morning or every afternoon. You might have a clinic, sometimes depending on the hospital. You'd operate in the morning, you'd go to a clinic in the afternoon where you would see patients that have been referred to your institution from GPs or from other specialties. And then they would come and you would give them your vascular surgery consultation and plan that may or may not involve surgery, booking them for surgery. So that's pretty much would make up every single day. Very rarely, would you have an afternoon or a morning off where you're not doing clinic and you're not operating? If you do, there's always stuff to do. You're preparing for uh, meetings. um, You have to present patients to all the bosses. You have to maybe do audit meetings and uh, other Sort of non non clinical work. Some units would have what we call a grand round, which is what you would traditionally see in the in the, in the hospital TV shows, where the big bosses would come around all in their white coats, and the, you would be presented with a patient, and they would give you their Yoda like wisdom, and you would, or you would use it like teaching. And it's usually very useful for uh, the junior staff and the patients and the nursing staff as well, because they they all If the culture is good, they're all given a a platform to ask questions, um, including the patients. And the patients learn a lot from it as well. So um, at that time, you really need to know who your patients are and what's wrong with them. Even if there are 30, 40 patients on your list, you need to know them all, which is a lot to have in your head (laughs) as you go around. You need to know their, their name, their age, their past medical troubles, what's happened to them, what their blood tests are like, uh, what their x-rays show, um, so you have to then present them and um, get a plan for the bosses, make sure they're happy, or, or you get a little bit of a tutorial about their 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 problem and, and um, how and why we're seeing what we're seeing. So that would pretty much be the day, week. Then you would do on-call. So, so sometimes you would be holding the phone uh, and then you would take calls from GPs, the emergency department, other specialties in the hospital, uh, about concerns, vascular concerns about their patients. Other hospitals may wish to send you patients or get advice, and that on-call will carry on through the night. How your on-call arrangement goes will differ between institutions. Last year I did a week on-call and a week off. Uh, This last year I think I did something similar. But other other institutions i work at, you do one day off and you have you have one day on and a couple of days off. So it all just depends how, how they run their unit. But that could lead you to days where the night prior you've been up all night taking phone calls or you've been up all night operating and your job is to show up the next day and do your job um, in that intense environment, needing to know all that information uh, and needing to perform at your best uh, being sleep deprived. We as a as a profession are trying to do better with stopping that happening and and preventing that type of fatigue and that type of um, experience. But you also have to weigh it up because it is part of your training and there will be an expectation that you as a surgeon, when you're qualified, you need to be on your A game at 2 o'clock in the morning when the phone rings and you have to get up and you have to fix someone's aorta that's ruptured. So there is an element to needing to train in those those experiences without being dangerous Um, and, and... I think we're still finding the, the fine balance in
1: that. What is the balance? What is the, the, the two areas that are being weighed up? Is it almost this is how it's done, this is my job and I have to do it? Is it patient care? Is it pride? Is it all of that? And then versus that fatigue, that ongoing and long-term burnout, and then also maybe not doing the job as well as you could after 24 hours awake, you know, is that, is that the two levels?
0: Yeah, and also, uh, I don't know if it was the UK. I'm going to use the UK as an example. Uh, There was another country that tried to go almost the opposite, where it was you're showing up at 7, you're going to do your job. At 5.30, your shift is over, and the next person is taking over. But if you're in the middle of an operation at 5.30, you know, you should stick it out. If you're doing the operation, you need to do that operation, not only just for the patient, but your learning as well you need to do operations to be a surgeon. you'll learn to be a surgeon but if it was 5 30 on the dot the next person comes over and takes over and cracks on and that would then then whose operation does who does that operation belong to uh who has the onus to look after that patient who then logs that in their logbook to say i did this operation when someone did half and another person did half or or whatever and i don't think that's the answer but I'm sure the 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 other end of the spec, so the other end of the spectrum, which is I've been up for 36 hours taking phone calls, is also not the answer. And I think when I talked about different units doing different rosters, I think that's where they're trying to figure it out. More staffing, I think, is important. There are prerequisites through the College of Surgeons about fatigue and how many hours you're allowed to work in a row, and I think that would be the fine balance, that would be really the the middle ground to where we need to be to ensure that we're not fatigued, that we don't crash our car when we're driving home, that we don't slip up with a patient's diagnosis, but we still achieve world-class training that we're still providing and churning out good surgeons and um, safe surgeons that can provide the community on their own um, at the end of their training. But... It can be an exhausting experience. I've definitely been sent home by my bosses in the past. I've had nursing staff pull me aside saying, when was the last time you shaved? You had a shower, had a proper meal, and they would just reading my boss. And if you've got good bosses, they would say, tell them to switch the phone over to me. They're going to go home and they're not going to come back till tomorrow. I've had bosses do the same thing. that They just say, hang on, you've been up all night? Because perhaps the boss you're working with that day wasn't the one that was on call overnight. But if the one that was on call overnight that you've been operating with says, by the way, Andrew's been up all night with me operating, I'm going to go home and go to bed cancelling my, my consulting rooms in the morning, but he's going to crack on do the ward round and do your list, the bosses would say, you can go home. Many others wouldn't care. As long as the work gets done, they don't really mind. And that's a culture-based issue. Depends on where you work and how well they look after you, I guess.
1: what is the landscape like in terms of people coming into the field? You know, are there lots of people that want to be doctors and surgeons? Is it a dwindling field, you know, in in Australia? Is it, and, and also the people that are in the job, is there burnout and people quitting or is it a job that everyone wants to remain in because of, I guess, they've invested so much into it? What is that like? There will
0: always be more people who want to do the job than eventually get on the training programs. I'm not entirely sure all the people that get onto the training program are one hundred percent aware of how much it affects your life in nearly every aspect. it is a it is a intense journey. But say for example, with vascular surgery, we have a binational training program between Australia and New Zealand, and usually about fifty to sixty people might apply. To be to try and get on to the vascular surgery training program a year and there are prerequisites you need to meet to achieve that to just be able to apply and then they may interview about 30 people every year and they probably take about six to ten people a year and that's a five-year training program so so that's your that'll be your odds pediatric surgery stop taking people for a couple of years so if you want to do paediatric surgery, you had to wait. And they take one or two people. Cardiothoracics take a handful of people. So you've got a lot of doctors and they may want to become surgeons uh, or they may be interested in surgeons. And to be honest, they'll probably all be great surgeons. But it's just about how you get onto the training program and then how you progress through that. And if there is burnout um, and people tend to quit, uh, they do. I think it would be rare, but they certainly do quit, yeah. Um, Most of the time they've figured it out before they go through the intense preparation and process to even get enough on your CV to be able to tick all the boxes to even apply the minimum prerequisites to even apply to a training program. That tends to be a process that I think will dissuade people who are either unsure aren't willing to accept the uh, the intrusiveness of the program on their life. But I was always told, and it may be good advice, it may be bad advice for different people, but my boss um, told me if there's something in medicine that you can do other than being a surgeon, you should do that. Mm. But if you can't, then be a surgeon.
1: And almost the opposite for of teaching where it's like for those that can't do, teach, basically... <laughs> <laughs> is the is the saying. And it's the opposite one for you know, you've got to have it's a burning desire, I guess, to be a surgeon, isn't it? It's not a um, I'll just try this out and uh and if I don't like it, I'll move on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you if you're going down that rabbit hole and then you just say, Yeah, it's not for me. But I, I think anytime you anytime you decide that is a good time to decide that. Yeah. Um, you. but Teaching is still a very important part of being a surgeon and a doctor. So actually, I think it's it's in the oath that I never took, but uh, there's some oath that doctors do. But, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. If you can't do, teach. I'm sure that's probably the same in surgery as well.
1: (laughs) So how did it all begin for you then, Andrew? What was your – I know that yours wasn't a linear or normal, I guess, um, journey into the medical profession, why don't you take us through your education journey and then when you first, within that, maybe when you first decided that you you thought surgery is for me.
0: <laughs> that one. Oh, so when I was at high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think I was a bit of a, um, a rat bag. I'd probably be the, the student that you didn't want in your class. <laughs> uh, that's the, the ones that caused you uh, all the grief. And I had, uh, I mean, I had a pretty... My my older brother uh, is an extremely intelligent guy who did so well at, uh, so well at school and and uh, to try and then sort of um, follow him through through the academic process there was an expectation on me um, I think by the the, the teachers that taught him because he was just he's just an amazing guy in every <laughs> every element really and even if I could achieve. The level of excellence that that he did, I just rebelled. Just said whatever, not interested. So I didn't really apply myself. In hindsight, I just uh, fought the system, and I got through it. I mean, I did all the did all the big subjects, the, you know, the two maths, the sciences, and and English, and sort of pushed through. The reality hit when the uh, high school grades came out, and my applications to medicine physiotherapy you know all the high-end healthcare professions you know were, i was nowhere near it i think i got something like 59 or something in my what, what do they call it now
1: yeah. atar but it was an enter wasn't it or atar or, inter score or whatever
0: yeah. yeah i think got like 59 and <laughs> like, that's not going to get me into medicine but i don't even know why i wanted to do medicine. i think i just put it down because it was hard Like you know, i had no idea I think I had this idea that I wanted to do healthcare stuff, and I don't know where that really came from. And then the reality hit after summer. We're all partying. We've finished high school. This is the dream. And then all my mates decide I've got to go to uni. I've got to pack up and go. And then I'm sitting around on my own, going, "What do I do?" So I ended up just looking around for jobs, and I got a job as a a, what they call a theatre technician, just like an orderly in an operating theatre, just a hospital orderly, you know. But they're an amazing bunch of people. They're really good fun. And a lot of them are people that have come from different walks of life. It's the second or third professional. They're doing it to just, you know, slow down in life. So you sort of learn a lot from them about life. But what I did was I got that job and it exposed me to surgery. So not only do I mop the floors of the theatre and prepare the operating table, I brought in all the instrument, you know, the, the non-sterile instruments and all the machines that they used. I got to watch surgery and I think at that time the, the hospital I worked in did not have medical students, so they didn't have them very often. So I'd just be this annoying guy that would ask the surgeons questions and then they'd just teach me about surgery and talk me through it. And I said, no, oh, it's pretty good. Maybe I'll have a crack at this. And I said, well, what do you do when you've got a bad enter score or an ATAR score and uh, you're mopping floors? Uh, in an operating theater and pushing patients around you know in trolleys so i had a look at that i'll i'll try nursing so i got into division two nursing as a maybe maybe it was a mature age student i was like oh, through a tafe and i think that tafe was linked to a, to a university and i did that for a few months and did some rotations in coronary care and rehab units and then i jumped ship into a tertiary degree I was maybe a mature age student but I think I was only 19 or 20 and then I did biomedical science in a Melbourne university and did pretty well got near straight A's or HD's or high distinctions or whatever you wanted and thought oh maybe I can do this medicine thing so I thought I'll sit the UMAT, I'll sit the exam to get or the GAMSAT to get into the um, medical school yeah I couldn't pass that exam I think I sat it three or four times couldn't pass it just on the background, my brother sat up without studying and nailed it, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just to go show how smart he is. But um, so then I then I jumped ship to a more prestigious university, did my honours there, got first-class honours, still couldn't get into medical school, can't pass the exam. Then I started my PhD and midway through that I realised that there's this medical school in Queensland that doesn't use the GAMSAT. And I thought, this is my in here. So I pushed hard and got in, got into medicine in Queensland and did that as sort of a, you know, a lateral entry student. They called it, you know, essentially doing the doing the undergraduate six-year courses, a four-and-a-half-year course or something like that. And so I moved up to Queensland, finished the PhD combined MBBS, PhD kind of thing, eventually finished the PhD which is a whole other interesting experience in my life that I don't reflect upon fondly. But um, And then finished, uh, and yeah, finished medical school up there. And then through that time, I still got um, mentored into pushing this surgical interest. So I created an anatomy, extracurricular anatomy courses and, and societies and stuff at medical school to really promote anatomy and surgery among students. And I moved to Cairns and did the same thing up there. And we still run this amazing course every year with um, friends and mentors. Like they were my bosses and, and my consultant surgeons at the time. And I consider them friends and surgeons now. And we run this course that's really taken off to, to teach surgery, uh, you know, with a cadaver-based course. So I sort of did that. And um, I always wanted to be a heart surgeon. My PhD was in heart surgery as well. I never had a mentor that encouraged me to do heart surgery. Every heart surgeon I met told me not to do heart surgery. There's no jobs. It's been stolen by vascular surgeons. (laughs) It's been stolen by cardiologists um, because the catheter-based, angiography-based stuff is now working and starting to really creep into non-invasive surgery. And then I got this this trauma surgery surgery desire I really like trauma surgery and that sort of developed later in my medical school times where I had a South African surgeon who um, taught me so much again now a friend and mentor I would consider them and uh, then I thought well all the good trauma is vascular trauma so I may as well try and do vascular surgery and I had a vascular surgeon in Cairns who terrifies pretty much everyone including me at times. But uh, she she um, really took me under her wing and, and encouraged me to do vascular surgery. And then I moved back to Victoria and started my internship and my junior medical training. And I had a, my first year job was in vascular surgery. Strange enough, with a surgeon who was a vascular surgeon who would used to visit when we lived in Fiji. So when I grew up in Fiji in my uh, in my youth, he was a resident and he would come and do diabetes research and things to do with uh, vascular health in the, in the Pacific. And he's a vascular surgeon in the unit that I was in, an intern. And then I subsequently became a registrar. And then he helped me, uh, or him and the other surgeons in that unit, helped me uh, get onto my training program and, and thrive as a, as a vascular trainee. So that would be my my journey in a nutshell
1: was that a chance meeting with, with the Fiji or the, the doctor from Fiji or did you keep in contact, did the family keep in contact?
0: I think the family were in contact when he first moved, but I was still. I think I was still at school when he first moved back to the city that we were in. But I was mopping floors for him, you know, way back when, so they knew I was around. So I was the theatre tech in that theatre, so I knew him from then as well. We kind of went, oh, hey. I lived in Fiji and used to come and visit. And I think there's a photo of me, you know, watching movies, uh, you know, in Fiji when I was a 12 year old kid or 10 year old kid or something like that. Yeah, it's a sort of small world when you think of it that way.
1: Um, Mm. I thought you might have planted the seed.
0: No, 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 not really. Although I'm sure that when I think about it now, when I was mopping all the floors and uh, getting involved in the cases, I tended to spend a lot more time in the vascular and the heart theatre. Maybe that was just my roster and then I just decided to like it. But I did, I, mean, I did a lot of orthopedics and plastic surgery as well. But maybe that's just where my interest went.
1: Mm. So you don't like to reflect on your PhD experience, why not?
0: Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It was just not the culture and um interpersonal experiences that I deem conducive to good academic work and just good human interaction, really. The, the project itself was amazing. Like I look back at it and go, geez, we were, if if the culture and the environment was a better one, you just sort of wonder what would have happened. Maybe I would have ended up being a congenital adult congenital cardiac surgeon, and things might have been different. But it taught—I think it taught me a lot about, uh yeah, not just not just science and research, but about how to treat colleagues and juniors and uh, nurture minds of people who are under your. Sort of tutorage, I guess, because we have know, medicine. You know, the people that are my my interns and my residents and my co registrars, they are not they're sharp they're sharp people. They've got they've got intelligence under their belt, and it's just about how you can harness that. And I think um, there's a there's an art and a skill in that. And I think that uh, that experience taught me you just need to find how to get that out of people, and I think you'll get the best out of them if you do
1: that. Do you think that your, I've heard you use the word culture and and collegiality and, and all of this, do you think that that remains strong because it really was the thing that, along with obviously hard work and intelligence, even though you, you compare yourself to your brother and and in awe almost, but, uh, but you've got that. Do you think that your journey and the fact that you were probably whether you felt it or people told you that you weren't good enough but you kept trying did did culture and mentorship and people really bring you along to where you are today and and that's ensured that that's remained re- something you really hold dear
0: yeah without a doubt and you know as well as I know that I I am the least intelligent of all three of my of the three of us boys in my family <laughs> But I, I think so, and um, I think the, the culture that, that you surround yourself in, and culture is a big thing in medicine and surgery at the moment. We're really trying to do our best to improve that. Of course, it translates into better patient care and better health care you know, provider care and health as well. I think there was a poor culture during my PhD, and... That did not instill confidence, yeah, yeah. and did and it didn't tell me, yeah, you can achieve what you want to achieve. If anything, it was quite the opposite. And I know I had one meeting that sits in my mind that I had to admit to my supervisor that I was inadequate, that I did not have what I took. So I reflect upon that. I also had it at school when I said, oh, maybe I want to do medicine and the teacher told me perhaps you need to reconsider that you know it's not for everybody and that some people may or may not have what it takes and i don't think i pursued that as a i'll show you type of thing definitely not for the um definitely not for the teacher but i definitely remember it so it's obviously something that stuck with me and i didn't do it for the phd people because i honestly genuinely couldn't Care less about that now. When you really reflect upon it in their own little um, microcosm, and you know, ten square feet of their office or whatever it is, they are they are, you know, significant intellects. But as humans, they're not pleasant. And you know, in the large medical and research world, you know, it's a big world, and uh, people don't know who they are. You know, and it's just like it's not a. It's you're not as. Um, High and mighty is perhaps you would like to sell yourself are sell yourself as, Uh, and if you do push that upon people, it it can people can break, and you can have significant detrimental effects on on people if you act and behave that way. So I think I learned uh, from those experiences, and I've tried my very best to embrace the opposite in how I manage my teams and how I work as a doctor. Uh, and I think most people tend to enjoy the units that I work in. And you're at work so often, if you don't enjoy it, it's not gonna end well for you. So you need to make it a fun experience and you need to make sure everyone's achieving what they want to achieve. I think that's, that's probably the um, most important thing I took away from my PhD, which is why I've never even printed it as a book. <laughs> Doesn't bother me anymore. I think you can Google it
1: there. That's enough. You've traveled far and wide in a way, Andrew. You've you've at least studied and, and done training around Australia and even overseas. What what experiences have you had, and, and which one was the most eye-opening for you?
0: Well, I mean, I had some interesting experiences through the New South Wales pandemic this year, but they're probably not
1: experiences
0: and comments that I'm willing to make public. <laughs> but I think what you're trying to get at, and I think what I probably prefer to talk about, and I'm sure anyone that knows me knows that I, I love talking about it because it's just probably one of the best experiences of my life is going to South Africa. And I blame the South African mentor that I had at medical school, absolutely wholeheartedly, 100% for that because I spent all this time with him when I was a fifth or sixth year student. By chance, I think I just rotated onto his unit and by chance I was the only guy there. Yeah, no registrars. They were off working with other people and he's this consultant surgeon, you know, pretty young guy. He's just moved over from South Africa and he just taught me everything. We would travel out to small little outreach towns and talk about surgery and me being uh, interested in anatomy and surgery I would always talk to him about that but what I did do was annoy him to try and do things while we're operating Uh, can you just let me like can I maybe do the cut or can I maybe stitch it up and he goes yeah in Australia it's different you can't really uh, do too much as a student um, because it's just not how it's done here. He's still here to learn. He goes, but what you could do is go to South Africa because it's a different education system there and the students there are really hands-on and you get to do a lot. So he teed me up with a elective when I went to South Africa. So I went and worked in Cape Town, in a really busy trauma surgery centre there. And from the first day I was there, I met, <laughs> the first person I met was an Aussie. Actually, it's pretty random. But um, the first day I was there, I met the registrar, who is now a really good friend of mine, and i actually in his wedding party when, when he got married. So I introduced him to his wife. And then the the fellow that was there at the time is another good friend of mine, and he's from Kenya. So we just developed these strong friendships when I was there as a student. I just did so much, and I saw so much trauma. And when you're an enthusiastic surgeon seeing... Knife wounds and gunshot wounds and machete wounds and high speed motor vehicle accidents. So, you're getting in there and you're helping the resuscitation, you're putting in brains, you're operating in abdomens and opening chests and seeing all these things. You're like, Wow, I'm just seeing so much. It just spurred this thing in me to go, Well, okay, maybe trauma surgery is my thing. And it made sense. All of it makes sense. And it's all anatomy. You need to know your anatomy. You need to know all this stuff. So, I thought, Oh, but we don't have such a violent society in Australia, so maybe trauma surgery is not, you know, something I should really get into too much. So I enjoyed that time, and I did another elective in, in vascular surgery with my mentor in Cairns, and then just carried on. And I thought oh, I enjoyed my time so much when I was an inter- when I was there. I went back to just have a holiday because I spent all my time in the hospital. I didn't even go and enjoy this amazing country. So I went over as an intern as a, when I was an intern just to do my. So I did this ATLS, like a trauma course. I did that in Johannesburg. And it's a course I need to do here as part of my, you know, check box to be a surgeon. And then I had a holiday and I randomly did a, went to the hospital to say goodbye to my, my friend who I met the year prior. And the boss was there and he says, oh, what are you doing here? Do you want a job? I can't pay you, but I'll give you a job. <laughs> so Because, you know, know, they haven't got much healthcare funding and they're not going to pay some guy from Australia to come over and work and they can't barely pay their own people. So I said, okay. I went through the ridiculous process of months and months of trying to get accredited with my, you know, registered over in South Africa and I worked, I think, something like three and a half months straight without a day off. And I did locum extra shifts over time and just saved up all my money and I moved to South Africa and did a year, year, just over a year of trauma surgery. And you know, my second year of being a doctor, I was intubating, putting you know, intubating patients and ventilating them, putting in big resuscitation lines, and helping in big trauma surgeries, learning how to open up people's chests and fix stab wounds to the heart. Yeah, you know, you know, proper trauma surgery, and uh, that just went right. Trauma surgery is just amazing. It's just taught me so much about critical care. And then I came back and then entered this slow Australian system. I was lost. I didn't know what to do. I was so used to just unbelievable high volumes of work and then had to readjust to the Australian system. So the South African thing was, uh, other than through COVID, I've been back every year done work, done research and seen all these people uh, that I met there. So that that was a life and career changing experience and all for the better, I think, even though I didn't get paid and it didn't count to anything that I've done here in Australia. It, it did teach me a lot about surgery and looking after patients and just being comfortable in an extremely high-stress environment.
1: Many people talk about their volunteering experience as being their I guess most life-changing and it seems like that's almost the case with you it's in the same field but you volunteered you you chose to do that it seemed like it just happened but there's got to be a drive or something in you that made you want to do that like you weren't getting your papers signed you weren't getting paid was there a purpose or something you wanted to achieve that was beyond experience or was it just simply friendship and experience that that made you do it
0: I think that the, my, my first time, when I was there as a student, I it just had the best time. There were there were other students there and we all got along. There was no infighting. There was no, oh, you got to go to the gunshot wound to the heart operating theatre. Next time I get to go, it was, if we just, everyone just worked well together. We all got to do stuff. It was, I think we just met the right people at the right time in the right place. And then it just, and I think all of us, Nearly all of us ended up wanting to become trauma surgeons. It was just that type of experience. And then my desire to go back there was just to do more of the work. The people were great, but usually when you do that rotation, you're only allowed to do it for three months because it really does start to change you emotionally because you are surrounded by a lot of death and a lot of human suffering. So I did it for, what, 12 months, 14 months straight. And to say I wasn't changed by July, like, you know, I did have experiences when I came back where it took someone to sit me down and say, that's not a normal emotional response to what's just happened here. And, and it took me time to readjust. But why I went back there was the learning. The le- what you see and do in the year there is worth five years plus here in Australia. So you got good quickly. And usually if you couldn't survive, you, you left.
1: Do you think Australia's got something to learn with the way that we train people from South Africa or, or leave that over there?
0: Uh, I think I think it's very different. Um, South African doctors are some of the best in the world for a reason. But it's purely based on high volume. Not purely based, but it is largely based on high volume. They just see so much disease and and significant pathology so often that they just have no choice but to get good at it. however their their earlier years one and two their internships are very different to ours and their doctors are they're better trained by the time they hit the ground so they do a two-year two-year internship but in that time they don't just do surgery and they don't just do medicine they have to do ONG obstetrics gynecology anesthetics So at the end of their two-year internship, they know how to give an anaesthetic. They know how to deliver a baby, properly deliver a baby, do basic surgery, you know, hernias, appendixes, um, things like that, and manage medical troubles. And at the end of their two years, they are obliged to do a year of what they call community service. They are sent out into the rural and regional parts of South Africa for a year to work with the skills that they've gained to provide service medical service to those communities so at the end of those 3 years they are they are extremely talented and highly skilled doctors we we don't have that here and there's many reasons for that we we also just don't have the volume of patients to be able to gain that type of skill set i think
1: emotionally then you, you discussed a little bit about that what i see that you've you get excited about talking about trauma or or about a certain wound or something, whereas it disgusts or makes some people faint as soon as they even hear it. Have you had to remove the emotion from the job or have you had to embrace the emotion with the job?
0: Well, I think if you start trying to become emotionless, that that stuff's got to go somewhere else. You're either going to hide it in or bottle it up and it's going to come out in the wrong way somewhere, somehow. But... You do become quite hardened there in that trauma unit to be able to do the job because the people you are keeping alive are often not the most pleasant people. They are gangsters, murderers, rapists, and it doesn't take you long to recognise the tattoos on the gangsters that tell you exactly who they are and what they've done. Um, The nursing staff there are phenomenal uh, and they uh, unfortunately live in this in the communities that a lot of this violence and whatnot, whatnot happens from. so to you know to be emotionally in tune with that is important. But you also have to take away that soft caring bedside manner that you would probably want from the doctor that's caring for nana in a hospital who's got a urinary tract infection. Uh, the, these are the people you just have to be straight down the line with. You have to adjust your behaviour to to work on their level to get them the healthcare that they need. So you actually have to be pretty blunt with them um, and speak their language. So to, to, to say that the language is polite is is not true. Um, and and most of the time that's how you 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 find your level with these these guys um you change your mannerisms you change the way you speak uh, when you talk to pediatric patients when you talk to older patients so you change the way you talk when you're talking to trauma patients um especially the time when time is critical in being that way and then dealing with that but then when you have a bad outcome of death um and there's a lot of the death you then brush that aside and you move on because there's far more. the patients just keep coming you can't just debrief with everyone and sit down and say, you know, is everyone okay? Uh, it would be nice to be able to do That's the right thing to do. But when there's three others that are waiting that are going to end up the same way um, if you don't do something, I think that eventually you probably start subconsciously putting the emotions aside if So, as opposed to what I was talking about earlier. You wouldn't consciously do it, but just to be able to get the work done and to be able to save people's lives, you... Probably subconsciously put away the the trauma that you've just experienced um, in that in in that uh, resuscitation, and I know that um, I had a death of a patient when I came back on the ward. There's a sick guy, you know. I, I spent a lot of time with him, and and he told me his wishes that he didn't want to be res, resuscitated and didn't want to have all these things happen to him, and and he died on our ward round. And the whole hospital, they called one of the codes and all the people came and our junior staff knew who he was and the nursing staff. And I had an experience where I walked into the room, he was clearly die, dying imminently, and I told everyone to just back off, leave him alone. This is what he wants. He's happy. He's comfortable. It's, it's okay to let him go. And he died. And it was the step beyond that that someone eventually told me that is probably your experiences in South Africa that underpin that because I didn't recognise that the nursing staff, all my junior staff around me were in tears, were just so upset that this nice person had died. Whereas in my mind, he was like, he actually, I mean, he was comfortable about an hour ago. He was up talking and he didn't have any pain and we absolutely, to the T went through his wishes. So all I wanted to do was just crack on and do the ward round. Let's keep working. Let's keep finishing this round and I can go to theatre. I've got other priorities to get to. I didn't realise that everyone around me was completely distraught because the ain't you know, died. Like, I can't do that. It was, we knew it was going to happen. But then I realised that I, didn't, I had, didn't have it in me to recognise the effect of that on everybody else because I was so used to people dying, uh, dying in points where you couldn't do anything. You knew that it was an unsurvivable problem. You knew that death is part of it. So that was a, a realisation where this does, you know, that experience did change me in ways that uh, were perhaps not, not all good. You know, I went there for an experience that was always going to be positive. but uh, And I did hear about this. I was warned about it. But at no point had I ever recognised that that was what was going on. So, yeah, certainly that's one element to working in horrific trauma centres. I mean, this trauma centre has the same volume of patients that civil wars see. It's just never been called a civil war.
1: It it reminds me of war. It reminds me of how soldiers sometimes feel upon their return, the way they explain their new life. You know, they were roaming around a country uh, in their minds, doing the right thing and doing their job, but it was different than it will ever be in a civilian or, or peace time environment. Did you? So was that adapting not only the emotional change but also just that that twenty four seven go go go, almost medic on in a war on at the at the front of a war. Is that how you you felt, and you had to some, somehow come down from that?
0: No, no, I don't think so, because. Outside of the walls of that trauma centre, I lived in one of the most amazing, beautiful cities in the world. Like Cape Town is phenomenal and people, especially Australians, always think of South Africa as this hostile, horrible, dangerous place and, and, and I felt inner city, Cape Town, is no more dangerous than parts of Paris, London, Sydney, Western Sydney, uh, LA, New York. The... Issues that they have are largely related to the communities on the outskirts of town that were the result of the post-apartheid or the apartheid, the apartheid and post-apartheid South Africa, where people were relocated away from the city, and that's where a lot of the violence happened. So it used, to, it would happen away from where you were living. Maybe different in other parts of South Africa, but in Cape Town, that's where it was. Uh, as I said a bit earlier, what you needed to realise was all these people, these patients were coming in. They were, you were never going to interact with these people. Oh, it would be so unusual you were going to interact with that person in my existence in Cape Town. But the nursing staff and the ancillary staff in that unit, they all did. And they could see, so they experienced daily the activities that made these patients arrive to the trauma center. Hostile gunfights, you know, sexual and community assaults on people, huge um, minibus crashes filled with people just trying to be shuffled around, you know, on the cheap to just try and make a living and survive. So I didn't really feel like it, I, I was in a war zone, but I recognized that the hostile and dangerous. Place, places that these people came from were also residents, like the places where good people and other people lived and they tried to have a normal existence. Uh, and that was, more, for me, mostly represented by the nursing staff who were just amazing. And so people were trying to live in and amongst this gang violence and that's, that's a whole other issue uh for discussion so i felt completely safe i mean i was aware but at no point i mean i had a gun put a gun on me in the recess bay and uh, i think you just so in your element didn't care we just cracked on to do what we needed to do
1: i i spent about two months in south africa in 2010 the world cup was on so i went for the world cup and i sort of spent a bit of time before and after the soccer world cup and Saw a lot of what you talked about. I mean, I walking through Cape Town, we went th- a dodgy shortcut that we were told never to go down, and we did it. And that one time I walked past and I was sort of walking tall, even though I'm very short, and walking past these these guys. And I walked past, scott Free, and I was about to think, oh, that was um that was a bit, you know, scary. And then my mate's up against the wall, hands up. <laughs> Um, up against the brick wall, and uh, the guy's acting like, give me your wallet, and he's, like, trying to get it. I'm like, mate, he doesn't have a gun. He would have got it out by now if he had one. Like, just keep walking, keep walking. And um, I sort of walked towards, and the guy sort of bailed out, and you could tell he was just a poor little homeless guy that was just trying to take an opportunity, you know. Um, And that happened. And Then I saw a mini, you you mentioned the mini bus. I, I remember driving... And about a minute before we got to this cliff face sort of turn, a minibus had gone off the edge and it just was upside down about 30 metres below. And there were all these things that kept happening in Durban. Um, There were gunshots going off. We were in the camp in, in, um, Kingsmead Stadium, cricket stadium in in Durban, staying in, inside in tents, and I remember that these gunshots just started going off, and I freaked out. I we we made friends with some locals, and we just like call the cops, like texting. There's guns going off just outside our tent, like we didn't realize it was a kilometer away or whatever, 200 meters away, but it was so loud and terrifying for someone that's never heard multiple guns firing. But um, so that's all true. But then I met some of the greatest people I've ever met, the most generous people. No matter what color, race, background, incredible people that you'd hug, you'd cry with, you'd eat their food, you'd cook a, you know, the the bray, the you'd have biltong, you'd you'd go to the beach, you'd you'd see whatever, and it, I can imagine why you went back. I can sort of understand wanting to spend more time in such a beautiful place that's so different from here, yet almost in some ways feels like home. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, and that that will make you feel like you're at home, regardless of who you are. If I could live there, I would. Like, I'd, I'd be the only person that's left Australia to go to South Africa, and not the other way <laughs> the other way around. But in your, you know, in your in your story, um, all I kept thinking was more about don't worry about him not having a gun. I'm worried about him having a blade. Hmm. You know, <laughs> that would be. With my concern, and but but as you said, you got told not to go down there, and you get told not to go to places in uh, you know South Central LA, in in London, uh, Sydney, and Melbourne as well. And we just don't go there. <laughs> There's a yeah. reason for it. Yeah. Um And that's that's. That, and I think I just followed the advice of my, my friends in in Cape Town, and I never had any issues outside of um, outside of work. Um, and it is. It's probably the most beautiful country I've ever been to. And, you know, not just not just from a landscape point of view, but the people are just amazing. So, mm. um, yeah, I will I'll be going back as soon as the borders open. I reckon.
1: We'll meet over there one day. What a what a place. Um, what is something that you're spending a lot of time thinking about right now? Right now, I'm a bit all, a bit all consumed
0: with. Um, thinking about my uh probably my more my upcoming exam which is my like my final exam to be a to be a specialist that's what's sort of coming up but that's definitely always hanging around is what i'm thinking about but at the moment the biggest thing before i undertake that journey i think i need to do a little bit more a little bit more for myself i think we we lose it we lose a lot of ourselves in surgery and in medicine and i'm sure in many other professions but the last two years with COVID, trying to work really hard, moving into state, having good and bad experiences, um, I think I've neglected uh, myself for some time, both from a uh, mental sort of wellness perspective and also a you know physical health uh, point of view, because uh, it's always one of those things you can always put on the side while you crack on and do another operation or you write another paper, or you give another talk. So I think it's, at the moment, it's time to sort of slow down and look after myself in the next little while before I undertake another full-on journey in the last step of my training. Because I think I keep forgetting that if I don't look after myself, it's really difficult to look after other people. And I think surgeons and doctors and um, healthcare providers need time to look after themselves and remain healthy for themselves and actually have a a fruitful life outside of medicine to ensure that the time of work is actually you get maximum benefit out of being there and you get the best results from being there because at the end of the day, your job is to show up and get the best result possible in whatever you do in the hospital.
1: And um, what do you... Enjoy doing outside of of your job. What what are your um, your getaways or your the things you occupy yourself with when you when you do get that little bit of free time? Yeah,
0: I mean, tra- for me, travelling. I've been sort of every, you know, trying to get as far away from from work and the 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 work life as I can. So with with COVID, it's been tough with travelling. But for me, uh, I want to get on a plane and go somewhere. Uh, I'm still drawn all the way over to Africa, not necessarily just South Africa, but I'd like to spend a bit more time doing that. But just the simple stuff from my perspective is um, trying to get to the gym, trying to achieve in the gym, I, I you know, spend some time with some people um, and stay healthy that way. Getting into the food and wine scene is also a big thing for me. Uh, I think I justify travelling to certain places to feed the wine uh, desires, but I, you know, will always um, head around to different places and always just sort of see if they've got good wineries and uh, and things like that. So it's uh, also about um, enjoying those parts of life. I think that's going to be the inner Italian side of me coming out. But uh, I think it's more spending time with the friends and the family because I know that I, I don't spend that much time with them when I'm when I'm uh, when I'm working. So some friends and family and just trying to get out there and see the world. Uh, and do the do the best I can from that, and try and stay healthy within my mind and uh, the the one body I've got for now.
1: And my final question is: um, Have you had a moment of clarity recently that you'd like to share with us today?
0: Uh, it's it's always a good question and quite pertinent for your for your um for your podcast. I think the experiences that I've had recently have really shown me how toxic and horrible the medical fraternity is to each other, and it's something that I probably saw glimpses of in the past, and it's something that I know people are working really hard to change, but recent experiences have now made that more personal for me, and I think it it is more clear to me how significant this problem is, and I'm now going to be spending a bit more time thinking about not so much how I can change it everywhere because you're not going. I'm not going to be able to change this problem, but what I can do is change it in myself, my behaviour, and how I conduct myself in the clinical setting and in my own life, um, and make sure that that. Those negative aspects to our profession uh, are stamped out, in, at least in my generation. So now, now it is it is uh, it is uh, much more clearer to me, having been elsewhere this year. And I think that's a huge part of my profession that I'll do everything I can to change.
1: Amazing, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure um, talking to you, and I really appreciate your time.
0: It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you to you, sir.
1: If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at MOC. You can also email me on Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.